Hi, this is Jim. Welcome to another episode of Kitchen Table Adulting. Today, my guest is Dr. Jennifer Kaler, and Dr. Kaler is a licensed clinical psychologist. Hello, Dr. Kaler. Hi, thanks for having me on. Thank you for joining us. And today's topic is mental health counseling. So Dr. Kaler is going to answer some questions so we can learn more about all things related to mental health counseling. So let's start there. What is mental health counseling? Or better yet, let's start with what is mental health? How do you define that? Sure. Um, So mental health includes our emotional, psychological, and social well-being. So it kind of encompasses three different areas of Um, health. And it affects how we think and we feel and we act. And it also determines how we handle stress and relate to others and make healthy choices. Um, And it's an important um, issue at any stage of life from like childhood to young adult years into the elderly. Um, And mental health and physical health are equally important. So they're often intertwined too. So if somebody um, is under a great deal of stress, um, they are more likely to have some physical health issues um, and vice versa. So it's really important to pay attention to both one's physical health as well as one's mental health. Okay. And, and when, we're, when we say mental health counseling, what's, how, how, how would you describe that? Well, that's, that's a way to describe it. I think um, the, some of the challenges that people have are in understanding the concept of counseling is that there is counseling. It's also, there's psychotherapy, there's therapy, um, there is psychoanalysis. Um, they're all different kinds of ways that people can treat their uh, mental health or their health needs. Um, so counseling and psychotherapy are probably the, also known as therapy shorthand, are probably the most common terms. Um, so mental health and counseling um, are, basically terms that are a term that's used to talk about more short-term issues, usually like problem solving a specific need that someone might have. Um, so it's more shorter term um, addressing like uh, mental health needs. Psychotherapy or therapy often refers to longer term um, work with a the therapist um, where you might be addressing like longer standing issues, but truthfully people use the words inter- interchangeably. Uh, yes, I did up until one minute ago. So. <laughs> I'm glad I helped learn. learn yeah, I, I learned something today. Okay. I guess it is generically, I, I think of people referring to it as counseling, although I have t- heard the term psychotherapy before. I think, well, I think people use the word counseling a little bit more because it seems a little th- less threatening or it seems a little bit less pathologized. Um, some people think of the word as psychotherapy or therapy as like there's something really wrong with you. Um, and so counseling, I think, is a, like a less threatening term that people tend to use. Um, but also different kinds of therapists that have different training also use the terms differently. Um, so we, if you want to know more about that, we can well, talk. Well, and that's a segue to my next question, which is the different types of counselors. Now, you are a psychologist, but there are other types of people you someone might go to. I, I know one is the licensed clinical social worker, correct? Mm-hmm. That's right. And are there others? Yes. So um, there are licensed clinical psychologists like myself, um, licensed clinical social workers. Um, so let me just to say, you want to say a few words about the differences between them? Please. Okay. So a psychologist is somebody who has their doctorate. So it's, they either have their PhD or their PsyD, which is um, written as PSY.D. 
Um, and they are people who have gotten um, a degree after four to six years of graduate school, um, plus a year of um, intensive full-time internship training. They also do part-time clinical training during their doctoral program. Um, and then they have to sit for a national licensing exam and then also get licensed in their um, in the state that they're practicing in. Um, and so psychologists do both psychotherapy, which is the term that's more related to psychologists use that term more. Um, and they also do psychological testing. So psychologists are the only type of mental health professional that gets um, training in psychological testing. So that's um, IQ testing, so to speak. It's um, educational testing. It's um, emotional, social, psychiatric, psychological testing. Um, so that's one thing. Social workers are, um, they complete a two-year master's degree um, and also extensive clinical training. And then they have to get a license in order to practice. Um, social workers work in private practice. They provide psychotherapy or counseling. And they also can work in, in agencies such as like um, in a community mental health agency or work for child protective services. Um, they can do a wide range of um, clinical services. Then there's also licensed professional counselors. Um, so they also have a um, two-year master's degree, um, usually a master's in counseling or a master's in psychology. Um, and then they also have a lot of clinical training and get a license. Um, and then we also have other degrees like licensed um, marital and family therapists. Like it says, it's like a two-year degree specializing more in working with families and couples. Um, and those are, those are the main degrees that we all have in mental health. Okay. So how would a, uh, you know, again, the podcast being for young adults, how would they know which one to go to or, or how to navigate that? Really? I mean, I think that if a person, uh, if, if a licensed professional counselor or a social worker, excuse me, or a psychologist um, are providing psychotherapy, um, I think that it's really up to individual preference. Um, some, some clients really want to see a psychologist. They want somebody with a doctorate. Others, that doesn't matter to them. It matters more about what the person's expertise is. Um, okay. They have, you know, extensive experience working with substance use. So they'll like go and work with that person. So it's really a personal preference, I think. Gotcha. And I, and I will say to the audience too, that should you ever pursue any sort of mental health counseling, you don't have to work with the first person you encounter. You you need to Definitely. click with anyone. Anyone you're going to see for therapy or counseling has to be a fit. So you might need to go to one, two, or even three before you find someone who gets you or who makes you feel comfortable. Is that fair? Completely agree. I think that a lot of the, the progress that's made in, in counseling or in psychotherapy is has to also do with the, the relationship with the, the therapist or the counselor, whatever you want to call it, it's the same thing. Um, and so um, that is extremely important that you feel like you can be honest and you can be open and that you trust the, the person that you're working with. Yeah. And then uh, you and I had agreed to explain the difference between psychologists and psychiatrists. Yes. So thank you. And I should have mentioned that psychiatrists also do psychotherapy or counseling sometimes too. Okay. Um, so psychologists, as I said, have doctorates. Um, they go to graduate school. They do not prescribe medication. Psychiatrists are medical doctors that went to medical school and they do a residency in psychiatry um, and they do prescribe medication. And some of them also provide um, psychotherapy. Okay. 
Yeah, and that actually was the uh, part of the reason I made the comment about shopping around for the right personality. Is the, the first time I ever got antidepressants when I was in grad school years ago, I had to start with a psychiatrist to get the script, and then you know talk to a psychologist. And the psychiatrist, I'm still angry at that guy. He was such a jerk, and mm. so that that's why it's important to me to remind people like you don't have to deal with you know somebody you don't get along with. Absolutely not, and there are very there are many very qualified providers out there and it's very important to find somebody that you feel like you can click with yes and uh let's let's talk a little bit about the stigma around mental health counseling now and to clarify for the audience um you know i'm currently 45 years old this topic was not even in america's vocabulary when i was a kid i mean the idea i i i mean psychiatrist maybe, but the idea of like counseling is so much more commonplace now, which is great, but it still does have some, some stigma or sort of negative connotation. Yeah, we, uh, so I manage the mental health services for um, a very large public university. And um, this is a problem we tackle every day, um, trying to encourage students to seek services from us um, in the counseling center. And you know, I think it's a co combination of issues that contribute to stigma. Um, sometimes students believe that um, you only go and seek help if things are at a level of a crisis, like if they're really, really serious um, versus getting help early on before something becomes serious. Um, other people have maybe cultural or familial um, cult beliefs about what it means um, to address mental health needs. Um, it's really looked down upon or criticized by family. and so. They feel unable to move forward with that, especially um, young adults that are that do have insurance under their um, parents' health plan will often be really hesitant to seek services because um, they know that their parent will see that they have done that, which is one of the nice things about being a college student because um, most universities, like the one where I work, provides free services and you don't use any insurance for that. Oh, I hadn't even considered that, but you're right. If you, yeah, if you're on mom and dad's insurance and then they get the bill and say, what, you know, what is this, what's going on? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I think that, I mean, I think, you know, as a society, we've made lots of progress in the last 20 years about accepting mental health, although there's still definitely some barriers to break down. Um, and one of the things that I've felt is, I got hung up for a long time on this idea of why is there something wrong with me that's not wrong with other people? Mm -hmm. And that was really hard for me to accept that. Mm -hmm. It seems like, of course, you know, you and I know that the, the people you see, you know, in everyday life or on Facebook aren't necessarily as well off as you think, but sometimes you can get the impression that like everyone else seems happy and fine. And I don't understand why I'm the one who has this problem, but I think the same is true for issues that would drive you to a medical doctor for pain in your abdomen or, you know, a sprained ankle or, you know, it's just the, the situation you find yourself in. Yeah. And I think a lot of, I think a lot of people in any age, but definitely young adults. Um, well, I would say that the young adult population today, as you pointed out, has, it just generally has many, has a much more open belief system when it comes to getting help for things or asking for help but we still have issues with stigma but um i do think that generally speaking it doesn't feel good to feel different and so that is often what stops people from getting help because they're afraid that 
um, there's something very wrong with them that other people don't have. And in fact, oftentimes they find out that they're not alone with something um, once they start talking to a therapist um, who can kind of validate and support what they're going through. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There are. Uh, that's one of my rules for uh, being a successful adult is you need to realize there are very few original uh, mistakes or problems out there. Somebody's done it all before. So Absolutely. it's really hard to be original uh, in, in any aspect of life now. So, um, OK. And this is a question I've actually wondered about myself. So for and when we're talking about mental health uh, issues, how much of the, I mean, I guess I'll just ask you off the top of your head, how much of this is due to life experience or trauma versus chemical imbalance, the way you're wired, the way you were born? Hmm. That's a, such a good question. And I think that honestly, psychiatry, the field of psychiatry and the field of psychology is, is an, an, not an exact science. So, um, Unlike other issues like medical issues where you can do a blood test and you can see that someone's blood sugar levels are really high or really low and therefore they're diagnosed with such and such. And, you know, there's a family history of diabetes, for example. Um, when it comes to mental health, it's a little bit more of a guessing game. Um, I would say that if in, when you're meeting with a new therapist, that therapist should do a really comprehensive like intake at the beginning where they're asking you a lot about your history and family history and those kinds of things. And that can help inform um, the therapist's understanding of what the what you might be dealing with. Um, so for example, if you share that both your mother and father have struggled with depression or that there's a lot of anxiety in your family or that your sister takes um, an antidepressant for this or that, that's just helpful information, I think, for the clinician to have. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you will have the same thing. Um, but if you have a strong family history of mental health issues, um, it's more likely that you may develop those same issues. And um, so it's really good to pay attention to any symptoms and get help earlier. Okay. And, and, but then some people are in counseling for things that happen in life. I, I think trauma is the one that comes to mind where yeah. it's not anything in the way you're wired. It's just something really bad happened to you. Um, what are, what are some examples that young adults might experience? Well, certainly trauma is something, and a lot of times young adults um, who have experienced trauma in their childhood don't really feel able to start looking at that until they've left their home um, and they're in a different environment. And so we do see a lot of young adults coming in, college students coming in for services to address trauma issues that never really felt, they were never really felt able to do before um, when they were living at home, for example. Okay. Um, but other issues that I think are really common in the age group are just anxiety and depression, but also relationship issues. Um, identity issues are really big um, and adjustment issues. So well, what does adjustment issues mean? Well, adjusting to a new environment, adjusting to being on your own, adjusting to living in a new place, um, adjusting to um, sharing space with others that maybe you haven't had to do before possibly. Okay. Um, yeah, but I'd say identity issues, relationship issues, those kinds of things are pretty big in this age group. Okay. And on the subject of trauma, this is, uh, you know, just what I've observed in life. Uh, that can, that ranges quite a bit from things that are truly like violent trauma, like you witnessed a family member being killed, all the to things that might not seem like traumatic events, but still have a big impact on you. Absolutely. Okay. 
And I, I can't think of a good example uh, right now, but I can, uh, does anything come to mind? Because yeah, I want well, to give it you happens a, to be my specialty area is complex trauma. And so I, I can definitely speak to it. It's um, I think that we as a society tend to think that if, like you just said, something really violent and awful happens to someone, then sure, they'll, they'll have a trauma reaction or they'll, or they'll develop post-traumatic stress disorder, um, like a car accident or they've witnessed a, a murder or something like that. Um, they've been sexually assaulted, but other kinds of trauma can also have really lasting effects on someone. So for example, growing up in a home with an alcoholic parent or a parent that was always absent, um, witnessing domestic violence growing up, even if the person wasn't um, on the receiving end of it, but they saw it a lot. Um, the way that it affects, affects people is always, you know, each person's different, but one of the ways is it really affects that person's sense of what it's like to be in a relationship with somebody like trusting others. Um, oftentimes it can affect their like sense of like self-esteem and, um, identity and feeling safe with people. Um, so it can have different kinds of effects. Okay, good. And this is, uh, uh yeah, there's, there's a lot there. Um, we could do a whole podcast just on trauma. I think, I, I think we'll bring you back for the trauma podcast. That's an um, area I know well, I'd be happy to talk more yeah. about it. Gosh, I, I actually didn't didn't realize there were so many facets to it, mm -hmm. but but I don't I don't think it. it and one thing I, you know, from my perspective, the definition of trauma is rel, is unique for each person. I think in in the sense that somebody could witness a single act of violence in their household growing up and not think twice about it or not really be affected, and then some people can witness somebody alluding to violence in the household and have a very deep reaction. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, that's one of the interesting things about treating trauma is um, kind of understanding the impact that that events have had on that person. So um, things that that are things that are significant are like protective factors. Like did this person, if home didn't feel that safe, um, did they have any other safe people or places in their lives growing up? Um, sometimes that can mitigate some of the, the severity of the trauma response. Um, but I was also gonna say that there are other kinds of traumatic experiences growing up. Bullying, being bullied um, can lead a lot of um, kids to experience a lot of trauma symptoms. And as adults, not trust other people and not feel safe with people. Growing up in a situation where you like, have food insecurity, where you um, don't really ever know exactly where, if you're gonna get your next meal, those kinds of things can also really have a strong impact um, and be trauma traumatic in, in a different way than we would normally understand it. Okay. Thank you for that. Uh, now, I know there's no easy answer to this, but okay. what what should somebody expect from counseling? Like, what's a fair, if somebody's, I have a feeling for most young adults, somebody's going to nudge you there rather than you finding your way to counseling on your own. But let's say somebody finally walks through your door. Like, wh what should they expect? Well, I guess the first thing is, it's not a one visit and you're done. This is not getting a, a tooth pulled kind of situation, right? I do not have a magic wand. Yeah. Okay. And I, I so wish I did, frankly, I'd be, I'd use it if I could on people. Absolutely. Um, so I think there's, I got to say there's, there's the pre COVID and the, the current <laughs> pandemic um, answers to what you'd expect in counseling. Cause it's very different. There's, we can talk if you want to about like virtual um, counseling versus um, normal, in a normal world, what you would expect. So in a normal world, you would um, you, you would make an appointment with the provider 
Um, and they either would ask you to um, fill out paperwork ahead of time by emailing it to you or, or, or I don't think people fax things anymore, but emailing it to you and having you complete it or completing it online on like a portal that they might have. Or they might ask you to come um, to their office and sit in their waiting room where you will find some forms to fill out um, and it's kind of arrive like 15 minutes before your appointment, like you would at a medical appointment. Um, and so you would expect um, when you go into the counseling office or the therapy office that it would be um, a very quiet space, uh, a space that feels very confidential. There's the door would be closed. Um, there usually a lot of counselors have what we call white noise machines or sound machines outside their office door just for extra privacy to make sure that you know there's nobody could hear anything that was said. Um, and then um, you normally, uh, a lot of time a counselor's office looks like a living room <laughs> where you have a couch and some comfortable chairs and usually there's some nice art and like a desk. And so usually you'll sit across from the counselor on um, wherever you feel comfortable, like a, a comfortable chair or a couch. And usually um, in the first session, the counselor will ask, start to ask questions about what brought you there, um, trying to get a sense of, of what you might need and um, get some background information from you, um, remind you a little bit about confidentiality, that what you talk about is confidential unless you sign a release of information, some of those kinds of intricate things. Um, and the hope is that at the end of the first session, you might have a sense of if this person's a good fit for you, if this counselor is somebody you'd wanna come back to or not. Um, and maybe start to get a sense of what you might work on if you were gonna be um, working with this person for th with their in therapy or counseling. That can sometimes take a couple of sessions though to figure out. I would I usually encourage people to give it like three sessions. Okay. Because it, it's hard to start talking to a stranger. So if after three sessions you're not really feeling like it's a fit, you're not really feeling comfortable with the person still, um, then I would suggest um letting that person know that you that you think it's not a good fit, which is okay to share with someone and that you're gonna like look around um more. So Okay. Yeah. And that, and that's something a, a young person would probably hesitate to do, but we're I know. And, and I, now, I, it's okay. <laughs> I've had that conversation with so many people it is really not a personal offense. Like I, as a therapist know that I am not the right fit for everyone. And I don't expect every single client to feel that way about me. Um, and I really am invested in helping clients figure out who would be a good fit. So sometimes if I'm not a, the best fit, maybe I don't think I have the right expertise for what this person's bringing to me. Um, I will help them find another, another therapist. So I'll reach out to some colleagues that I know I've done that many times if it's, if it's appropriate. Okay. And, and in t I know there, there is no normal, but in terms of duration, I would imagine that some people are going to go maybe once a week for eight or 10 weeks. And some people, I know some people who have been seeing a therapist regularly for seven years. So yes. totally um, correct. And there are, there are people that see therapy or counseling as the time each week that they take care of themselves. They stop and they just, it's self-care. And so they are committed for the long haul. There are people that they'll go for 10 years, they'll see the same therapist or longer. Um, there are people who um, need to see a therapist long-term because of the extent of the issues that they're dealing with, especially when we're talking about trauma. Oh. Um, sometimes some trauma histories do require longer-term therapy. Um, and I often say to my clients, you know, it didn't happen overnight and it's not going to go away overnight. So it's, it is a longer term work. Sometimes people need to be seen twice a week in the beginning, if they're coming in, in some kind of crisis, um, and then go back, you know, go down to once a week. But then there are people that just need, like you said, eight to 10 sessions to address a particular issue. And then 
they're okay, or they just go back periodically to see that therapist. Okay. And and you've you've mentioned crisis now. When, when as a layperson, when I think of crisis, I, I immediately think of somebody who might be suicidal. But I'm sure mm-hmm. there are more examples of crisis, like people who just can't function through the day, or or what, what else would what else meets the definition of crisis? Well, definitely, you're right. Like safety issues. So, um, someone who's dealing with suicidal thoughts, um, somebody who um, maybe is struggling with self harming thoughts, like um, self-injuring because they're in distress. Um, Sometimes people have thoughts of hurting others. That would be a crisis. Um, But not all crises are at that level. Sometimes it is that they are going through a breakup and they are really having a hard time getting out of bed and functioning. Um, And they really need to be seen more than just once a week in the beginning to just kind of start to get over that hump of, of what they're struggling with. Or it could be the sudden, they're dealing with the sudden um, a job loss, which is frankly a, a grieving process when you suddenly lose a job and they're feeling like they don't, you know, they're so overwhelmed with where to go that they they really need somebody to, to work with them more than once a week. So I think it's really, as a therapist, when I'm making that decision about twice a week or once a week, just for that first part of the work together, I am usually thinking to myself, okay, how much is this issue impacting this person's ability to function? Um, how, um, how symptomatic are they? Um, how hard is it for them? Like what's going on in terms of their, um, everyday, um, functioning. Uh, let's talk a a little bit about, uh, different forms of counseling. And I guess now in COVID time, zoom is all the rage, um, in person probably is preferable. Yeah, this is like, this was a huge debate when the pandemic started up and a lot of therapists were really scrambling to figure out what to do. Um, So I would say in order of preference, absolutely in person is the best possible way to provide and receive counseling. Number one, you are in a quiet, confidential space. Um, There's something to be said for driving or walking or whatever to your therapist's office, sitting in a waiting room, having a little bit of like a space from your normal world, going into a, like going into an office, talking about your stuff, leaving that kind of thing. But also um, on zoom and on, on the phone, you just, a clinician just misses body language. You can't. Oh, that's see, a great point. Yeah. yeah. You can't really see. Um, for example, if I have a client that has an eating disorder, I have no idea what they look like from the neck down. Um, so there are things like that, that, that is important, but also things like a client that's fidgeting or really anxious. Like you, you miss that stuff with body language. Um, so that's, but, so that's why in-person is preferable. And I don't know any therapists that are providing in-person right now. Sure. Um, the second one, and I'm so grateful in this, you know, in, in 2020 that we have, um, virtual te- like platforms or telehealth, um, is, is like zoom. There are a lot of other platforms that are used. Um, it's always really important to make sure they're encrypted. Um, so we do that at the university and, um, yeah, so we always have to make sure that the person's in a confidential space that nobody, we say to them, are you in a private space? And it's amazing. Sometimes people will try to have a therapy session and their roommate is in the room. <laughs> so yeah. we'll say, you know, it sounds like this might not be the best time. The boyfriend um, I'm going to break up with is sitting next to me, but let's go ahead and talk. <laughs> right. Or, you know, we've, we've had clients that are, um, you know, they're taking virtual classes from home. And they're, they have a, they they share a bedroom with a younger sibling and, um, it is hard to find a space. So we try to problem solve with clients about, um, at the university about like, we've had people do therapy from their car. 
Um, we also do offer an opportunity for students to come in and use one of our telehealth offices where they're on the computer with a clinician in a different space, um, but at least it's a private space. And then the last one would be phone. Phone is really not great because I have no idea if somebody is crying, smiling, frowning, distracted, like what's going on on the phone. But um, it is something that sometimes we have to use, especially like if the internet goes down or there's a bad connection or sure. something like and that. And then there's also uh, most of what we've talked about has been individual counseling, but there is group counseling. Or yeah. Okay. And, and what what can you give give us one or two examples of when a group setting makes more sense? Yeah, groups are amazing. If any, I know that they can be intimidating, but if um, anybody listening ever has an opportunity to be a part of group, I really would recommend it. Um, so there are groups, we offer groups, like uh, we have our, we offer a group, for example, called Understanding Yourself and Others, USO, we call it. Um, and basically it is a group of same age students that um, want to have a better understanding of themselves in relationship to others. So um, what it's like to be in a group of people, getting feedback from people about topics um, in an honest and kind of safe and confidential setting. And this is run usually by two therapists um, and talking about relationships, identity stuff, but in with others that are in the same cohort or age group. Um, and then there are other groups that are more like skills-based or specific. So um, a group that's maybe just for people who are struggling with um, substance use. Um, that can be like, so the, the topic is like, how to stay clean and sober. And there's a support group in that way. Um, there's lots of different kinds of groups out there. We we run some of our most popular groups are for um, our LGBTQ um, community, like lesbian, um, gay, bisexual, trans community on campus. Um, so, Okay. And uh, we probably can't fully answer this, but I'm for people who don't have insurance, are there, is there usually an option in the community? That is always challenging. Um, so we deal with this a lot too. Um, there are, you, depending on your community, so there are people that live in more urban areas that have more resources and options. And then if you're in a rural, more rural area, it is always harder to find those kinds of services. So if you're in a more rural area, um, oftentimes you might want to contact um, like your community mental health agency, um, usually through the county, they'll offer some kinds of services. Um, like uh, to the Department of Mental Health or the Department of Behavioral Health. Um, but I also want to recommend, because a lot of people don't even think about it, if you are near a local university, a lot of times um, the university will have like a community clinic that's run by their um, graduate program in psychology or counseling. And that's a place where they those students are getting training uh, and providing free, free services under the supervision of a licensed clinician. Um, so that can often be a really good option too. Okay. And, and if you are absolutely clueless, start with a free medical clinic near me, call them and ask for a reference to mental health or something. They'll, they'll if, know. Right. And if, also I wanted to mention, since we talked about trauma, if somebody is needing support for um, sexual assault, um, there are rape crisis centers that, that offer free services um, and usually some very good treatment for that too. Excellent recommendation. Okay. Well, let me just ask one, one final question. Uh, thinking about all the things that are uh, relevant to being an adult, what is something you wish you had figured out before you turned 25? I wish that I knew or thought more about saving for retirement. It seemed so far away when I was that age, but comes really quickly. It still does. <laughs> 
Okay. And would, when, when did you get serious about that? Really not until I had kids in my thirties. Did I start really thinking, gosh, I really should be planning a little bit more. Um, and, um, so it's, you know, those years, those earlier years when, um, you don't have kids or dependents, it's a great time to start saving if you're, if you have the ability to do that. It is never too early to uh, start saving. I agree. All right, Dr. Kaler, thank you so much for your time. And I will, uh, coordinate with you to have you back to do an episode about trauma. Thanks so much, Jim. That concludes today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any follow-up questions, you can email me at askjimkta at gmail.com, or for more information, check out kitchentableadulting.com.